Today's reading is Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me, and they could not tell me what this means. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems, If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched in the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and set over 
than anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mean, mean, to kel parsin. Here is what the words mean. Mean, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. To kel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius, king of the Medes, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This photo was captured by Caroline Paul uh, this Wednesday night on a flight from New York to San Francisco on uh, Virgin America. And if you're looking at this, if you can see it from the back, it's not as clear if you're way back there, but, but bathed in, this, in the glow of this pink neon light is Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump arguing on almost every screen on that airplane. Pretty amazing photo. About 71.6 million people watched the showdown in Las Vegas this week on Wednesday night, making it the third highest viewing audience of any presidential debate in our country's history. But at least one person decided to tune into something else. Uh, Someone shout out to 28A watching Real Housewives. She's the smartest one on that plane. (laughs) That's pretty classic. With so many people invested, so many people invested in the outcome of this presidential election and what it might mean for our country and for the world, here's my question to you. How, what have your conversations been like? What have your conversations been like? And more specifically, how has our time spent in Daniel, in our study in Daniel, affected the way that you see government and politics and political leaders and the world, and human history, has it made a difference? Has it made a difference to the way that you view the role of Christians living as a creative minority in our world? And You're not obviously responding to me right now, but I hope it has, because that's why we're here, and that's why we're doing this, is to make a difference in the way that we live. Because if this is just about acquiring knowledge, you're going, well, that was interesting, then we've missed it. I certainly have missed it. The goal is to have our lives transformed as we come to God's Word. And so with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn on or turn to Daniel chapter 5, where we encounter an incident from which we get the saying, the handwriting is on the wall. 
And I simply want to highlight some textual and cultural details that might help us understand the text better, and then I want to ask the so what question, the so what, continuing the so what question of what might this mean for us living as a creative minority in our culture today. And by creative minority, for those who are new to Grace, what that is is it's a, it's a term coined by Arnold Toynbee, who was a historian who wrote a book on on civilizations and whether civilizations are basically destined to decline. And he said because civilizations have both a spiritual and a material component that they don't necessarily have to decline, but there can be renewal, there can be revival, but that belonged to the creative minorities. That depended upon the creative minorities. The creative minority is a group that finds himself in the minority and instead of separating from the culture or syncretizing with the culture, becoming like the culture, they become distinct but their distinctiveness is used to make a positive contribution to the society. Okay? And that's what we've been looking at. And the, the, Jew, the history of the Jews has been a history of creative minority. And the question is whether in today's world the Christians will step up and be a creative minority or whether they will continue to either separate or syncretize and become just like everybody else in our culture. And so there is a big, there's something at stake in our history right now. We are living at a very crucial moment in history, at least I think so. So a little bit of background. As we come to the story in Daniel 5, Daniel's been displaced from his home, from Jerusalem. He's been in Babylon now for over 60 years. Judah was conquered by Babylon in the 6th century BC. The capital city was destroyed. The cultural elites were were deported to Babylon. And Daniel is now over 80 years old by the time we get to Daniel 5. He's worked in the government of King Nebuchadnezzar, but now Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Here's a, uh, here's a list of the Babylonian kings, okay? And when you get down to the last king, Nabonidus, you don't see the king who is mentioned in our text today, Belshazzar. Now, why is that? Well, Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the, technically the last king of Babylon. He made his son, Belshazzar, co-regent, meaning that he reigned with him. And so Belshazzar took over, the, and he actually ran the kingdom while his father, Nabonidus, was absent for 10 years in Arabia. So this is why he, technically, he is technically the, the second ruler behind his father, Nabonidus, and it's the reason why he can only offer the position of third ruler in the kingdom to the person who can read the handwriting on the wall, because he's the second, he's the second in charge. Um, here's another piece of history for you people like history. This is what is called the Nabonidus Cylinder. It is in the uh, British Museum. Uh, I'll just read it for those who are on the uh, podcast. This mid-6th century B.C. cuneiform cylinder was discovered. It's made of clay. It was discovered in the temple of Shamash at Sippar. It's in Iraq. It tells of Babylonian king Nabonidus' reconstruction of pagan temples and the discovery of ancient inscriptions of former kings. More importantly, however, it offers historical confirmation of Belshazzar who was previously either considered legendary or the Bible was mistaken to identify him as king since he was absent from any official king's list. This confirms the historical figure of Belshazzar and it says that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son and co-regent, explains why Daniel could rise no higher than third ruler in the kingdom. Here, give me the next image if you would please. 
There's another uh, photo of the image, and this is what it actually reads on the inscription. These little cylinders were rolled in clay, and that's how you end up having official documents, okay? So you, they're inscribing on this, and then they became, you rolled them. This is what it says. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead, and grant me as a present a life long of days. And as for Belshazzar, so he names him, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great godhead in his heart, and may he not commit any cultic mistake. May he be sated with a life of plentitude. So there is his history, all right? That's cool, isn't it? You like that? I liked it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> all right, so the, back to the text. The setting is a state banquet, and it's a sign of honor appropriate to any king, but anybody who reads the Bible knows that royal banquets in the Bible often end up being a place where things go wrong. Genesis chapter 40 in the Joseph narrative, remember that? Pharaoh at a banquet ends up at the end of the banquet hanging the chief baker. Esther. The book of Esther opens up with the king calling his wife, the queen, to come to his banquet. She says no. He banishes her and he starts tryouts for the next queen. And that begins the drama of Esther. Mark chapter 6, another banquet. This time it's a party put on by Herod for himself for his birthday. His illegitimate wife, who was the, uh, the wife of his brother Philip, her daughter is there dancing, and he's so pleased with her dance in his honor, he offers her up to half the kingdom. She says, no problem, I'll just take the head of John the Baptist. And so on that night that John the Baptist is beheaded. So anybody reading the Bible knows that royal banquets are oftentimes the scene of things, are oftentimes a, a, very, a scene that doesn't turn out well. And Belshazzar's banquet is a scene of carousing, and decadence and self-indulgence that turns into sacrilege and blasphemy. But what is wrong with this orgiastic feast is not the thing itself, it's where it leads. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Belshazzar's father uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, and that term that is used there, a father, is probably better understood as ancestor. That was a common reference that they used historically. Nebuchadnezzar had captured these vessels when he had conquered Jerusalem, and he had learned to honor the God to whom they belonged. But Belshazzar remembers the first, that Nebuchadnezzar had indeed captured these vessels, but he completely ignores the second. He ignores this fact of honoring this God to whom they belonged. So ultimately, it's Belshazzar's posture towards God which, for which he's indicted. By Daniel, and we'll see that in verses 22 and 23. So Belshazzar uses these temples that had been captured from Solomon's, uh, the vessels captured from Solomon's temple in Jerusalem that had been sacred to the gods, to God, and he offers a toast to his gods. And what is significant about this is that he was making a statement about Israel's gods. 
God, I kept saying gods. He has, there's one God in Israel, all right? Israel's God singular. We have gods and God going on here. He was making a statement about Israel's God. Basically, by, by drinking out of these vessels, he is saying that the gods of Babylon, the might and the power of Babylon is superior to Israel's God. And this was common because if you were an army that captured, that conquered another nation's army, then it was believed that your gods were superior to their gods because you had been given the victory. So as a reader, you sense the king's decision isn't a good one, that something bad is about to happen, and it does. Verse 5, look down at the text. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So the evening's program has an unplanned item. Something that wasn't on the agenda across the platform on which the king is seated, raised above the parting throng. His eye catches the movement that is illuminated by the large lampstand. And this mysterious handwriting appears on the large plaster wall. Here's a painting by Rembrandt capturing that, that event. He, he makes it more European and in his time, so it's not as, it's not, it doesn't have that feel of, of what the actual culture would have been like, but he captures the drama of it. He captures the, the look of Belshazzar and the surprise and the horror, actually, on his face. Because centuries earlier, a hand had written on two tablets of stone, no other gods before me. And the hand that wrote at Sinai now writes again, but this time a more sinister message on a wall of a palace at the party of a pagan king. And in that moment, the king realizes that his life is in that very hand. Notice the graphic description of the king's terror in verse 6. It says that his face turns white, his mind is anxious, and his knees knock. What about the phrase, his limbs gave way? That's what the ESV has. It literally means the knots of his loins were loosened, they were untied. There's a 1991 uh, article in the Journal of Biblical Literature written by Al Walters in which he analyzes the words and the cultural use of these terms to reveal that this is a way of describing the king losing control of his bowels. So in other words, it could be translated, he was so fearful, he soiled his royal garments. Now why is that significant? Well, the narrator is using humor. Most of us sitting in here today were afraid to laugh at that, not sure if that was appropriate, but the narrator is using humor to mock the kings, the great kings of the earth, who appear foolish before the sovereign God of Israel. So once again, the king's dream specialists, the wise men are called in to interpret the riddle of the wall. The queen mother appears, and she reminds Belshazzar that King Nebuchadnezzar had faced a similar situation and had called this man named Daniel to appear and to help out. Daniel's finally found in verses 17 to 24. He refuses to, 
to allow financial reward to, re- to receive it because he doesn't want it to affect his message to Belshazzar. And so with a calm authority, he begins by recalling the position of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 18. This is the last text I'm going to read. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with, that, with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So while the chapter begins with what Nebuchadnezzar had taken, chapter 5, verse 2, from, from the temple in Israel, Daniel invites Belshazzar to think in terms of what Nebuchadnezzar was given. The vessel should have reminded Belshazzar of the God who had given Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Because that's how the book opens up in chapter 1, verse 2, with this statement that Judah had been given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he looks at Belshazzar and he boldly drives his point home. Verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He basically says to him, you knew all this. You knew all this, but it didn't change your ways. You knew all this, but you didn't do anything about this. You knew the history. You knew what had happened before you, but it didn't change anything. And so by worshiping these senseless objects, you ignored the God who has power over your actual destiny. Notice that Daniel spends more time explaining the reason for the handwriting on the wall than actually on what it means. He's focused more on indicting Belshazzar as being truly guilty than on explaining the judgment awaiting him. Belshazzar failed to learn from history. And now he'd face the God he blasphemed. Daniel finally reads the handwriting on the plaster wall and the meaning is simply this, that your time has run out. When? Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That night, in history, October 11th, 539 B.C., the mighty army of the Persians came in and conquered the kingdom of Babylon. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah had predicted this 200 years earlier, And Daniel himself had told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would come to an end in chapter 2. So here's the so what. There's the text, there's the story, there's the commentary. So what? How might this bring hope to God's people who find themselves living in in a minority either then or now? Okay, that's the question. Well, first of all, this is theological history. 
and it's important to realize that. This is theological history. It is not like the dry stuff we often had growing up in high school, you know, names, dates, facts, you know, regurgitate them on a test, and you're like, no wonder I hated history. This is theological history, meaning that it's intended to show the character of God by revealing his actions in human history. So when you read the Bible, you need to understand that, that it's, it's much more than history. It is history, but it's much more than history. It's about God, and God's character is revealed through his actions. And it's designed to create trust in God over the empires of the world. It's designed to cause us to trust God over the powers in the world. Also, Daniel 4 and 5 are at the center of the stories in Daniel 1 to 7. Um, here is a, an image from... No, back one. Anyway, there was an image there very briefly. There it is. There's an image um, from the Bible Project. And I circled Daniel 4 and 5. You can't see it probably way in the back, which is a reason there's plenty of seats open. If you guys ever want to move back from the, all the way to the back, uh, these are wonderful seats. They have just as much cushion as back there. And I'd love to see your faces. Now, back to the sermon. Um, you see Daniel 4 and 5 right in the middle of this section of 1 to 7. And it ends up with Nebuchadnezzar's pride and Belshazzar's pride down there. It's a great little image. All that is in Aramaic. But the reason for that is that in Daniel 4, God, it tells us that God has a relationship with pagan nations and kings. And then chapter 5 amplifies this by saying that God raises up pagan kings and nations and leaders and governments, and he sets limits on them. And I've already read that in verses 18 to 19. But fundamental to the whole book of Daniel is this message that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. There is no human power apart from God granting it. There is no human power apart from God granting it. This book and this history is telling us that God is in control. God is in control. And God has set limits to human powers, to governments, to rulers, to prime ministers, to presidents. And he has also set limits on human pride. And this brings hope and this brings assurance to Christians, people who are following Jesus, who find themselves in a minority, in a culture, in a nation, who feel powerless oftentimes in the face of the empire and the threat that the empire sometimes feels like it's posing to us. The message of Daniel is this, that in spite of present appearances, God is present and in control. All right, say that with me, okay? Wake up out there and let's say that last phrase together, all right? Let's go. In spite of present appearances, God is present and in control. One more time with gusto. In spite of present appearances, God is present and in control. Need to take that out with you this week, folks. And let that shape the way that you look at the news, the way you, you engage with everything that's going on politically and culturally. Whatever you read on the internet that is all the doom and gloom, that we are being told that in spite of present appearances, God is present, he has been, and he will continue to be, and he has been in control, even in the times of the Babylonian captivity, the Persian Empire, and so many other empires, 
God has been present and it has been in control and he uses events for his glory. He uses these events for his glory. He is not shaking. He is not worried about who is going to be elected as president of the United States of America. So do we need this in our day? I'm telling you, I think it could free us of a lot of anxiety. A lot of anxiety that many of us are carrying around with us because there's so much anxiety in our culture right now. And I think it could also deal with the impulse to retreat or worse, the impulse to just give up and give in and just say, you know, the whole thing is doomed. It's all going down. I need to just go ahead and grab what I can. I'm going to grab my money, I'm going to grab my income, I'm going to grab my security, I'm going to grab this and grab this and just hold on to it and produce the security that I need for myself while this ship is going down. I'm going to be like everybody else in the culture. And that's why I'm telling you, I, like never before in my time as a human being living on this planet and in human history, have I seen or sense an opportunity for the church to wake up and be distinct. The way that we have been functioning up to this point is not going to cut it. Because largely we have syncretized, the culture has got us. We look and we search after, we seek the very same thing the rest of the culture is after. And if we open up our mouth and we say something about Jesus What, just because you need some kind of personal peace, personal security? Or is it something larger? Does our life demonstrate that this this reality that God is sovereign over all, and because of that, we can live distinctively in the face of the cultural values and the aspirations and the ambitions of the culture to be distinct, and to be distinct in such a way as to bring change? It's not to say, see, I'm different from you. It's to bring change because our distinctiveness is compelling. That's what I'm suggesting to you. We have an opportunity to offer. Go engage your, your friends who, don't, who aren't Christians. And I'll tell you, I'd put money on the table that they are looking for hope. And they are looking for something compelling. And that's where we come in. But retreating... And syncretizing is not going to cut it. But you see, we have to be people who are convinced that God is present and God is in control. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this message from Daniel. It's been fantastic. At least I've so appreciated this book. Wow, how timely it is, how real it is, how it speaks to my heart, and to hopefully the the people who are sitting here today with me, I ask that um, you would give us courage to trust in something beyond just the messages our culture brings us that tells us how to behave, how to think, how to believe, how to live. Instead, we would listen to you, we would follow you, we would throw off the gods and the idols of our culture to seek after you, to follow you, and to be that creative minority that our culture so desperately needs. So guide us this week that we might take small steps toward that in our conversations, in the choices that we make, in the decisions on how we spend our money, our time, who we're with, and may it shape our conversations. May it give us hope. In your name, Jesus. Amen.